What would it take to make you really, really happy? Think about that just for a moment. What would it take to make you really, really happy? Listen to this story about happiness. Once upon a time, all good stories start with that phrase. Once upon a time, a beautiful, independent, self-assured princess discovered a frog in a pond. The frog said to the princess, I was once a handsome prince until an evil witch put a spell on me. One kiss from you and I will turn back into a prince and then we can marry, move into the castle with my mom and you can cook my meals, clean my clothes, bear my children and forever be incredibly happy doing so. That night, while the princess dined on frog legs, she kept laughing and saying, <laughs> I don't think so. What would it take to make you happy? That was a question posed to 52,000 Americans in the magazine Psychology Today. Here are some of their answers. Friends, a good job being in love, recognition and success, sex, personal growth, a good financial situation, having a house, being attractive and beautiful, being a parent, getting married, the list goes on and on. It's clear that in our culture, happiness is largely dependent on having the right set of circumstances. One author calls it when and then thinking. When I fall in love, then I'll be happy. When I get out of school, then I'll be happy. When I make this much money, then I will finally be happy. And the desire for happiness starts at a very early age. McDonald's certainly knew this when they came up with this ingenious marketing tool to keep kids and families coming back known as the Happy Meal. But there's just one problem with Happy Meals. They only provide temporary happiness and as you get older, they get more and more expensive. There's a Bible character who spent a lot of time and money in his pursuit of the ultimate Happy Meal. His name was King Solomon and he said this in Ecclesiastes. He said, I decided to enjoy myself and find out what happiness is. As your pastor, I just want to say this. If you want to save yourself a lot of time and trouble when it comes to pursuing happiness, go home today and read Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Because Solomon, the wisest human being who ever lived, says, I pursued happiness, but all the roads I took were dead in streets. Listen to this. This is what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I decided to cheer myself up with wine and have a good time. I was thinking about how many times teenagers, college students, adults have pursued happiness in the same way? By drinking, maybe by drinking too much. But he goes on and he says this, I, I accomplished great things. I built myself houses, I planted gardens, I piled up silver and gold. Men and women sang to entertain me and I had all the women a man could want. Yeah, I was great, greater than anyone else who had ever lived in Jerusalem. Anything I wanted, I got it. I did not deny myself any pleasure. I was proud of everything I had worked for. Then I thought about all that I had done and how hard I had worked doing it, and I realized it didn't mean a thing. It was like chasing the wind of no use at all. Solomon discovered that happiness is not found in pleasure. It's not found in possessions. It's not found in achievement. And I think we all would agree that as much as we want to be happy, it's hard to be happy. Is that your experience? It's hard to find happiness and even harder to hold on to happiness. 
When you look at the teaching of Jesus, it's clear that he understands that it's really hard for us to be happy. I mean, think about the, the people to whom Jesus speaks. Their country is occupied by a foreign army. They, they are living basically at the poverty level. They don't have any hope for the future for themselves or their families. Not exactly the conditions that are conducive to happiness. And yet Jesus has the audacity to say, you know what? Even in these kinds of circumstances, it is possible to live above the circumstances. Jesus taught that even in a very unhappy world, it is possible to find peace, contentment, and even joy. Now that sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? What a paradox, what a contradiction, but so much of Jesus' teaching is like that. It goes against conventional wisdom. Now this morning we're continuing a series based on a section of Matthew's Gospel called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is going to teach us some important things we need to know about what it means to be blessed by God, how to live that kind of life. So this is Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Now when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus delivers this sermon on a mountainside. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Pastor Phil talked about last week. And Jesus goes on, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, today, we're going to look at that statement. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Because, listen, church, when you understand what Jesus meant, when you actually do the things that he teaches, you discover that this idea of finding comfort will change your life, and it will change you. So, what does it mean to be blessed? Now, I can remember growing up around church, and I would hear that word, you know, I went to church today, and I was blessed. Or, you have been such a blessing in my life. That sounds really nice, doesn't it? But what exactly does that mean, to be blessed? Well, in the, in the Bible, the word blessed refers to the relationship that God has with his people because of his covenant. And, and the covenant is really a promise that God makes. And so in this covenant relationship, God's people know that, that they can be secure because God's promised to take care of them and provide for them and protect them. And in this covenant relationship, they're, they're significant because, hey, they're somebody, they're God's people. So what does that word mean? Well, let me give you a working definition. What does it mean to be blessed? Being blessed is having a sense of contentment, peace, and joy that is not dependent on circumstances, but on a relationship with God. That's what it means to be blessed. Having a sense of contentment, peace, and even joy that is not dependent on circumstances, but on a relationship with God. And before we go any further... I really need to make a critical distinction between two words because they're used all the time, almost interchangeably, happiness and joy, but there's a very important difference. The word happiness comes from an old English word, happenstance, and that points out that happiness is dependent on circumstances. If my circumstances are good, I'm happy. If my circumstances are not good, I'm very unhappy. But joy is different. Joy is independent of circumstances. It depends on a close relationship with God. And that's why the Bible can say this, rejoice in the Lord when? Always. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are because your joy is not based on the circumstances. Your joy is based on your connection with Christ. Now, this is really important. Being blessed does not mean that you will always be happy. Being blessed does not mean that you will always be happy, but it does mean 
that you can have a deep sense of contentment and peace and even joy that comes from a close connection with God. And here's why I point that out. I have heard from quite a few people over the years that if you're a Christian, you should be happy all the time. Anybody ever hear that? If you're a Christian, you should be happy all the time, right? You should bounce around like Tigger, right? You should smile. It doesn't matter what you're going through. You should be happy. You should smile. My goal in life is not to live up to the expectations of other people. My goal in life is to be like Jesus. And you know what the Bible says about Jesus? This is from Isaiah. It's a prediction about the one who is coming. It says that Jesus is a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And not only that, Ecclesiastes tells us this. There's a time for everything. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and there is a time to dance. So there's a time to be sad. In church, sometimes the only appropriate response to life is grief. Because this world is filled with sadness. And maybe this morning, your world is filled with sadness. And with all the sadness we encounter, Jesus makes this incredible statement. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, what was he talking about? Well, here's somebody that can give us some insight into Jesus' teaching, this world-famous theologian. You may have encountered him before. Who is that? Charlie Brown. One of his favorite statements is, well, it's an oxymoron, isn't it? Two words that don't seem to fit together. What are those two words? Good grief. Charlie Brown, wait a minute. How can grief be good? Well, let me tell you in a nutshell how grief can be good. Are you ready? Okay. Grief is good because it is essential to our physical, emotional, and spiritual health. See, grief is a very painful emotion. But it's a necessary emotion if you want to experience God's healing. And listen, if you are a person who never experiences grief, it means that you're out of touch with reality. Or you're out of touch with your own emotions. Or you just don't care. Because listen, when you care, when you love people, you're going to have sadness in your life because of what they go through and even because of what you go through. And, and I know this, that some of us this morning have never really worked through the grief that we've experienced in our lives. Some of you are all grown up, but there are things that happened to you during your childhood or your adolescence, and you've never really processed that grief. It could have been a divorce where your parents went their separate ways. It could be that you experienced abuse or neglect or, or felt abandoned. It could be the death of somebody close to you, and you took that grief and you just buried it. I'll tell you this, if you don't deal with your grief, it'll come out. Because your body keeps the score. If you don't deal with your grief, it can affect your health, it can affect your relationships. Listen, grief is good because it can enable us to get through some really hard times in our lives. But to get through those times, we have to come to God. We have to tell God, what we're thinking and what we're feeling. We have to have the, the honesty to communicate to other people that we love and trust as well because that's how we experience God's healing. So that leads us to this next question. Okay, we're, what are some of the things that break your heart? What makes you mourn? Well, let me just begin by telling you what makes me mourn, what breaks my heart, and it's happened over and over again. Continues to happen. It's when I decide to do something my way instead of God's way. And there's a... A theological word for this, it's a short word, 
three letters, has a big I in the middle. What is the word? Sin. Sin. I, I remember um, as a kid growing up, we had to memorize the Ten Commandments. And uh, the, the Sunday school teacher would say, you know what? Um, God doesn't want you to break his commandments. Okay, I got that. Makes sense. And as I got older, I realized, you know what? When I disobey God, I'm not just breaking his commandments. I'm breaking myself against his commandments. Because the proper response to sin is grief. It's sorrow over our sin. And we're going to talk about how to process that in just a moment. But that's one of the things that should break our heart. Our own sin, our inability, our refusal to live God's way. Here's another thing that really could and should break our heart after sin, suffering, suffering. All you have to do is turn on the news. I try to stay in touch with the news all the time because I just want to be connected and be able to talk to people about what's on their hearts and their minds. But I'll tell you what, we are surrounded by suffering. There's a lot of pain on this planet. And sometimes, you know, I'm watching the news and it's, there's an earthquake, there's a flood, there's a shooting, there's a bombing, there's poverty, there's famine. It's like, you know what? I gotta turn this off. You ever feel like that? I cannot take one more sad thing today. <laughs> I'm at my sadness limit. But you know what? Let me point out one more thing that should cause us to be sad. Separation. And here's what I mean by that. There is a separation between God and the people that he made, the people that he loves. And this, this is something that I think about all the time. I'll, I'll be at a red light in my car, and I just look around at the other people that are, that are next to me. I look at their faces, and I wonder, what's their story? Do they know that God loves them? Do they know that Jesus has a purpose for their life? And church, here's the thing. When we realize that there are so many people far from God, that should make us sad. And that sadness should be a catalyst for us to want to do something about it. So, so look, in summary, there are a lot of things that can make us sad. But here's the big question. How does God bring comfort to a broken heart? How does God help us to deal with all the sadness? I mean, after all, Jesus said this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be what? Comforted. And that was the mission of Jesus. That's why he came to our world. This is a, a verse from Isaiah. And when Jesus launches his public ministry, he actually stands up in the synagogue and they hand up this, this scroll from Isaiah to read, and this is what he reads. He has sent me, God has sent me to comfort all who mourn, to give those who mourn in Zion, which is a reference to Israel, to give those who mourn in Israel joy and gladness instead of grief and a song of praise instead of sorrow. So how does God do that? How does God give us his comfort when we grieve well here's the first way this is on your outline with his pardon with his pardon there's a story in the bible about a man who understood that grief is good his name is king david and he's often referred to as a man after god's own what man after god's own heart why because he had a passionate love for god but king david battled some other passions in his life as well and there's a time that he's on the roof of his palace and he sees this beautiful woman taking a bath and even though he knows that she's married to one of his most loyal and faithful soldiers he sleeps with her and then he sends her home and then he discovers that she's pregnant and now King David knows that he's got a a big problem on his hands so here's what he plans to do he, he calls this guy back his name is Uriah her husband calls him back from the battlefield um, says come home because he thinks hey if he sleeps with his wife and people find out she's pregnant it'll be okay 
but it wasn't okay. Because Uriah, in respect for his men, didn't go home and didn't sleep with his wife. And when King David found out about this, his plan got even more sinister. Because what he did, he said, okay, well, here's how I'll deal with this problem. He told one of his generals, listen, when you guys go back in the battle and the fighting is really intense, put Uriah on the front lines and then you guys abandon him. And that's what they did. And Uriah is killed. And then the prophet in Israel, his name is Nathan, he comes to King David and confronts him with his sin. King David doesn't lie. He doesn't make excuses. His heart is shattered. And his heart is shattered not just because of the fact that he got caught. It's not just because of how it hurt other people. His heart is absolutely crushed because he knows that he's broken God's heart. Let me ask you this. Have you ever done anything that broke your heart? Have you ever done anything that broke your heart? I know I have so many times. And what about this? Have you ever failed to do something? You knew you should do it, but you didn't, and because you didn't, it broke your heart. I mean, we've all been there, haven't we? And so Jesus comes to us and says, hey, listen, blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted by God's pardon. Church, we need to hear that this morning. Because this brings comfort to us. This brings comfort to me all the time. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted by God's pardon, by God's grace, by God's forgiveness. And here's why that's so important. Because when you're sorry over your sin, that sorrow can move you in one of two directions. It can move you closer to God or further from God. And we see a very dramatic illustration of this in Jesus' disciples. Remember Judas Iscariot? What does he do? He betrays Jesus. Is that a sinful thing? You bet it is. So what happens to Judas? Well, he allows that sorrow, because he's really sorry for what he's done. He allows that sorrow to drive him away from God, and he ends up taking his own life. But here's the flip side. Peter denies that he ever knew Jesus, and he's really sorry. He goes out and weeps bitterly, the Bible says. But you know what? He turns back to Jesus, and that relationship is restored. There are two kinds of sorrow, one that drives us to God, and one that drives us away from God. And look at this verse. This is such a powerful verse. It says this, for God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek what? Salvation. To seek God's rescue. We will never regret that kind of sorrow. That's good grief because it drives us to God. Now here at BBCC, we often talk about the good news and the bad news. And I hope as we do this that you guys are really understanding this. Because the gospel is the center out of which we live. And also, I want you to be able to remind yourself of the bad news and the good news, but be able to tell that to other people as well. And I was thinking this week about the bad news. When I think about the bad news, you know what it does for me emotionally? Makes me sad. It really does. Because I realize, you know what? I, I came into this world with a heart that pulls me away from God. And I have made choices that have broken God's heart and because of my choices, there was a time in my life when I was separated from God. That makes me sad. And it should. And not only that, when you realize, hey, you know, my sin means that God can't just look the other way. He's got to punish me. That makes me sad too. And so when you look at the bad news, when you understand it, when you believe it, it should make you really, really what? What should it make you? S-A-D. Sad. You can tell me. What, how should it make you? Sad. Okay? But when you look at the good news... 
The news that God loves you more than you could ever imagine, it should make you really, really glad. And it does. Because this God who loves you, this God who created you to know him, to trust him, and, and to live life with him, loves you so much that he didn't just say, see ya. No, he came to us. Jesus Christ comes to this world. God the Father allows God the Son to come on the greatest rescue mission the world has ever known. And Jesus came. He said, I came to heal the brokenhearted. I came to heal those with broken hearts, broken dreams, broken lives. How do we, how do we see that play out? Well, Jesus comes and he does what we couldn't do. He never makes God sad because he perfectly obeys God's commands. He never breaks himself against those commands. He keeps them perfectly. And that uniquely qualifies him to offer himself in exchange for us. And that's what happens on the cross, church. Jesus Christ dies in our place. God's willing to put our sin on Jesus, punish him in our place. But Jesus doesn't stay dead. Three days later, what happens? He roars back to life and he offers us what? A new life where we can be glad. Because God really loves us. Where we can find comfort in the pardon of God. I'll tell you this. I never ever get over the fact that when God looks at me because I've trusted Jesus when God looks at me it's as if I never sinned I'll tell you what believing that gives me great comfort whenever I deal with my past failures my present failures and even the ones that I know will happen down the road here so church be encouraged find comfort in the pardon of God now here's something else that I want you to see this is a verse from Psalm 32 what a great description of this, this comfort. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived, notice this, in complete honesty. Complete honesty, nothing to hide from God. So God comforts us with his pardon. He also does this, he comforts us with his presence. His presence this verse from Psalms says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those whose spirits have been crushed. Have you ever experienced this? You're really sad and, and you know that you're supposed to you know, pray about it and you're supposed to feel like God's right there with you, but it seems like God's a million miles away. Have you ever been through that? And I have. And when that happens, I remind myself of this truth that what I feel and what is real is not necessarily the same thing. Because I know that God said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm not going to leave when it gets really, really hard. See, God is not only present when we're sad, but he also grieves along with us. I was thinking about a time when my, my parents made me go to church when I was a kid. Didn't always want to get out of bed and be there, but that's what I had to do. So I'm in Sunday school, I think this is in the fourth grade, and the teacher says, okay, kids, um, I want you to memorize the Bible verse and recite it to me next week. And I'm thinking, oh, man, it's probably going to be really long. And then she said, no, you can choose whatever verse you want. I thought, oh, man, this is good, because I know what verse I want, John 11:35, shortest verse in the whole Bible, two words. Yeah, you guys know it, don't you? It packs a punch, though, doesn't it? Jesus did what? He wept. Why was Jesus weeping? Because his friend Lazarus had died. And we read the story in John chapter 11. And here's Jesus crying. And guys, let me just say this as an aside. Real men cry. We should not be afraid to express our sadness and our grief. Jesus did. 
And you know, Jesus isn't just crying because his friend died. You know, we talked about the things that should break our heart, sin, suffering, separation. Jesus is crying because of all of those things, because sin has entered the world and it's messed up the world and nothing is the way it's supposed to be. But here's something really important from the story. Okay, Jesus is there, so there's comfort from his presence, right? And there's comfort because he's grieving with people. He's crying alongside them. But there's another really important way that God comforts us, and it's with this, with his power. With his power. Let me ask you this. Just imagine being there. People are crying their eyes out because Lazarus has died. How does Jesus respond? Does he say, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. I wish there was something I could do to help. What does Jesus say? Hey, take away the stone. What stone? The one in front of the tomb. Take it away. And people protest. Are you kidding me, Jesus? He's been dead for four days. There's no way. Hey, Jesus says, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He says, take away the stone. So they roll away the stone, and Jesus, the author of life, stares into this dark tomb and shouts, Lazarus, come out! And the impossible happens. A dead man walks out of his own grave. Now, church, what does that mean for us? Here's what it means. When you face an impossible situation, when your heart is breaking, and you think, there's nothing I can do, you remember this, that what is impossible for you is possible with God. God has all the power he needs to accomplish any purpose. And we know that because of this scripture. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I remember Chuck Colson one time said something that was profound. The first time I heard it, I thought, man, I've got to remember that because it's so important. He said this, despair is a sin because it denies the sovereignty of God. Think about that. We never have to despair, even when our hearts are broken, because it denies the sovereignty of God, that God can do what God plans to do because of his wisdom and his power and his love. And I remember reading this, this sermon one time and it said this, that God is the sovereign sentinel who stands guard at the gate of your life and only allows in that which he can use for your good and for his glory. And if you believe that, if you really believe that, that brings incredible comfort to your heart. Here's another way that God comforts us with his people, with his people. Look at this verse from 2 Corinthians. God comforts us in all our troubles. Why? so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Church, this should be a place where people find comfort. God's comfort flowing through us to each other. And I'll tell you this, and my wife Chris would say the same thing. In the last couple of weeks, we have experienced God's comfort through you. Through your prayers, through your words, through your cards, through your encouragement. And I know this too, when you come to church on Sunday morning, you know, sometimes you're having a good week, sometimes you're having a terrible week, sometimes it's somewhere in between. But right now, today, there are those of you who are going through a really tough time and you need some comfort. And others of you, you know, things are going fairly well, so you're in a position to do what? To give other people some comfort. But here's the reality, often it's both at the same time, isn't it? I mean, you need some comfort, you can give some comfort. 
What does the, um, what does the term bolo mean? Be on the lookout, exactly. Okay, here, here's what I want you to do. Be on the lookout on Sunday morning for somebody that you can comfort, somebody that you can encourage. You know, after the service, we tell you, hey, if you've got a prayer need, go to the cross and somebody will pray with you. You know why we want to do that? Because that's the way you find comfort. It's the way you find encouragement. So really, if you have a prayer need, guess what I want you to do? <laughs> go to the cross. I, I prayed with a young man this morning after the first service. In fact, he came up and said, hey, can I talk to you? <clears throat> and he had a really big issue in his life, and we went over to the cross, and we prayed. And I could see on his face he had been comforted. So allow God to use you to comfort each other. And let me just say this real quickly. We could talk about this for a long time, but let me give you some, um, some things to avoid when it comes to comforting other people, things you don't want to do. And the first is this. Don't minimize the pain of other people. Because what seems hard to them may not seem so hard to you or vice versa. I, I shared a story in first service. It was from a pastor's wife who related a story that took place in their church. This young mother um, lost her child. It was a really tragic drowning accident. And somebody in the church, another woman, was trying to comfort her. And she went to her and said this, at least you're young enough to have another child. She wanted to comfort this person. Can you imagine what was going through that grieving mom's mind. I don't want another child. I want my child back. So don't minimize the pain of another person. And here's another thing to avoid. Don't rush people through grief. Grief takes time, and it's different for all of us. Because here's the reality. When you've been through deep grief, you don't get over it. You get through it by God's grace. Here's another way that God comforts us. It's the last thing we're going to look at this morning. God comforts us with his promises, with his promises. And here's one of the great promises of Scripture. It says this, He, God, will wipe every tear from their eyes, from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You know, every time I read that verse. Every time I say that verse to myself, it brings me comfort because I know it's true. A church that understands this, a church that lives this out is going to be used by God to bring comfort. We need to point people to Jesus, the one who makes these words come true. Well, church, today is a communion service, and while I was working on the message, I decided to do this um, to ask my uh, research assistant to give me the definition of communion. So I pulled out my cell phone and said, Siri, what does the word communion mean? And her answer stunned me. Seriously. So I didn't know that, that Siri was so spiritually aware. <laughs> but this is, this is the definition I got from Siri. I wrote it down. Listen to this. The sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a spiritual level. Man, that is spot on, isn't it? And think about this. When you share your thoughts and feelings with God, that draws you close to God. But, but check this out. God wants to share his thoughts and feelings with you. And there is communion that happens. And it's not just vertical, it's horizontal. We get to do this with each other. And so here, here's what I want you to realize. That when you come to communion, 
you experience comfort. God's comfort. The comfort from being with God's people. Relying on God's presence and God's power and God's promises. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want us all to have an opportunity to experience that comfort, not just to keep it to ourselves, but to extend it to others. So what I'm going to do in just a moment, um, and le- in fact, let me do this. Band, would you come up to the stage? Um, what I want to do is read some verses from 1 Corinthians 11, as we typically do, just to prepare our hearts. I want to lead us in a prayer. And then I want us to do something different this morning as we celebrate communion. We're going to sing a song that's going to lead us into communion. So I'll let you know um, what to do at that point. But right now, I just want to read these verses written by Paul, a follower of Jesus in the first century. And he talks about what happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before he went to the cross. And he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, like we're doing right now, Jesus says, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. You ought to examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. And Paul tells us why. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, these verses are encouraging us to take an honest look at our heart and to say, am I really a follower of Jesus? Have I understood the bad news? Have I embraced the good news and given my life to Christ? But church, communion is a time for those who are Christians to say, hey, God, I don't want there to be anything between us. I don't want any unconfessed sin in my life. So, Lord, would you point out anything in my heart that offends you? Anything that I need to work out with another person in your family? And so, church, with that in mind, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that that right here, right now, we can come to this table and find comfort, find grace, find pardon. And, Lord, for the person who's never done that before, I pray that this would be a day that changes their life forever. And listen, this morning, if, if you want to, to come to Jesus, if you want to experience the grace, the forgiveness, the, the purpose that God has for your life, then, then just where you are with your head bowed, you can just tell God in your own words, God, I'm really sorry for my sin. Just tell God that now. And you can tell God, God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins and that he came back to life and Jesus, I want to follow you. You can just tell, tell God that right now. Father, I thank you because I know whenever somebody sincerely prays that prayer that their life is changed forever. And God, for those of us who have trusted Jesus, Lord, right now in the quiet, if there's anything that we need to confess to you, would you show us what that is? God, thank you today for the comfort from your pardon, your grace, your forgiveness. And Jesus, would you please do this? Draw us to your heart now so that we can experience the comfort that you promised. For Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.